0: This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Lecolona. Today is the last episode of our show. It's a two-hour special to honor our friend and colleague, former KUNM News Director Hannah Colton. We remember her for being a great news leader and a smart and brave reporter. Her family and friends remember her for her radiance and kindness. But no matter how people knew Hannah, most everyone brings up her openness, her ability to listen well and to really hear people over the next couple of hours. You'll hear from some of the many people who knew and loved Hannah about her essential work before and during the pandemic, but also about who she was inside of that work and beyond it. died at age 29 by suicide in November, and you're going to hear some references to that during today's memorial episode of No More Normal. If this show brings up heavy feelings, and if you want to talk to someone you don't know about those feelings, there are people waiting to hear from you. The state's warm line is open every day from 7 in the morning to 11 at night. You can reach those folks there at 1-855-4NM-7100. We'll bring up more local resources throughout this episode, but we've also got them listed for you on this show's post online at KUNM.org. Just as humans and their memories are complex and prismatic, this episode isn't one note or feeling. But if you need to take a break from listening at any point, don't worry. You can come back to this show later online and through any podcasting platform. If you'd like to get together with others in the community to process this loss and sing together a set of songs Hannah selected for a community sing-along before she passed, an in-person public memorial is being held this evening at 7 p.m. at Tegue Park. Hannah's family and friends invite you to join us. (laughs) Hannah Colton was raised in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, alongside her brother, Tim. She grew up loving music from an early age, as well as writing and storytelling. She attended Duke University, studying public policy and environmental science. After she graduated, she worked at the Center for Documentary Studies in Durham, North Carolina. We'll start with a conversation between former KUNM reporter and Nomono executive producer Marisa DeMarco and Hannah's parents, Brad and Kathy Colton, give us a sense of how Hannah came to journalism.
1: She absolutely loved writing. You know, she was always just an extraordinary writer and wonderful with the English language and all of that. And so she interviewed her grandparents a few times during the course of her probably high school through college years. The
2: biggest thing that I constantly think about now that I'm getting older is that I didn't sit down with my grandparents and ask them all kinds of questions Detailed questions about their life growing up.
3: That's my grandpa, Marlon Cook, my mom's dad. The stories he has left from his grandparents are filled with gaps and facts salvaged from obituaries. Now I'm 22. My grandparents are getting older, and I'm getting more curious about why they are how they are, about the ways that we're similar and yet so different.
2: When I was growing up, it was during the Depression. My dad worked at the post office, which was a good steady job, maybe not real high paying, but at least I can never remember us not having enough to eat.
1: You know, when she applied for the job in Alaska, we were surprised. On the bank of the Naknek
3: River in King Salmon is Float Plain Row, where a hunter just flew in from the field. He's got a hide laid out on the gravel. They set up shop on the tailgate
1: of their pickup truck.
2: This is a caliper.
1: She really learned on the job there and just absolutely loved learning about people's stories. In Alaska, that's where she really came into the realization that she had a voice through this type of work that could amplify the needs of others.
4: So Hannah moves to Alaska and she's embarking on her journalism career. What are the things that you were talking about as she was engaging in that work?
1: I mean, she would go fly with a pilot out to a remote village and interview them about, you know, some new bridge that they were building in order to allow for the indigenous community there to be able to have easier access to a fishing ground or, you know, different things like that. She just, she loved children too and education. And so she really enjoyed working with the students there and writing stories about things and going to their activities and doing a report and
3: interviewing the kids. When school lets out at 3.30 sharp, Peter Geffey and Amy Anguson climb into a 15-passenger van. Both brother and sister put in their earphones for the one-mile drive from the school to the small gravel landing strip that is the Naknek Airport. Now teenagers... Peter and Amy moved to South Naknek from Anchorage when they were in elementary school, and they've been flying to school ever since. Amy told me she likes getting to see her two hometowns from the air every day, especially this time of year when everything greens up. Besides being fast, the air taxi is the most reliable and safest way to get across the Naknek River. 20-foot tidal fluctuations make it impossible to launch a boat at the same time day after day. And the river doesn't freeze consistently enough to drive vehicles across in the winter.
1: She just ate it all up. I mean, she was always up for a challenge and was so smart about everything that I think that job up there was just a great match for her and she loved the adventure and loved the outdoors and had no problem meeting people as you can imagine and getting to know folks and enjoying that part of it.
5: I also think that's where she really started developing uh, more of an empathy, more of an understanding of indigenous people's
3: State troopers from Hooper Bay got a report that Travis Wassily and Jesse Kasiley, ages 17 and 20, were overdue on a trip from Chivac to Scammon Bay. Search teams from all three communities set out and searched through the night, but their efforts were hampered by strong winds and low visibility. When the search resumed Thursday, it was joined by 74-year-old Francis Charlie, a relative of the two men. Charlie said he felt a strong urge to go off in a different direction than where the searchers had been looking.
5: Somehow, some somebody pushed me go, cause that was uh, stormy at night. I can't stay in a chair or bed, so I go.
3: Charlie wanted to go despite having had bladder surgery just a week before. His wife, Teresa, said she tried to stop him leaving, but it was no use.
1: There was nothing I could do because he kept wanting to go. He was so worried. The only thing I gave him was bottle of holy water. That's all I let him bring. On account of the surgery,
3: Charlie had to stand up during his solo two-hour search over bumpy trails. Eventually, he found Wassily and Kasily about 15 miles east of Scammon Bay and brought them back cold and wet but unharmed. Charlie believes the boys got lost because the wind shifted overnight, and he thinks they weren't looking out for landmarks like patches of grass and old snowdrifts.
5: My grandpa always tell me every time you go someplace, don't follow a wind. They'll change right away.
4: Brad, you and
1: Kathy are both educators, is that right? Yes. Brad was a speech language pathologist, so mm-hmm. I worked in the schools. Brad was principal and teacher for schools, so yeah.
4: Yeah, so one of the things Hannah and I talked about one day is we noticed that her beat. It was education was strongly related to your professions?
1: Did you guys ever talk yeah. about that or think about that? I guess that makes sense. She heard a lot of talk around the kitchen table about things so related to education, and
5: yeah, she she definitely had considered becoming a teacher. Oh, right, she came pretty close.
1: Well, so she yeah, she definitely enjoyed the topic of education. I just know that she really enjoyed the interviewing she was able to do.
0: Anna was great at speaking with people. Her passion for education continued when she came to New Mexico and came to work for KUNM, where it was her primary beat for a while. She always covered education with an eye toward equality and equity.
6: KUNM, I'm Megan Kamrak. Last year, legislators changed the K-12 funding formula so schools can no longer get money for students who are over 21. That hit Gordon Burnell Charter School in Albuquerque particularly hard. Educators there work inside the Bernalillo County Jail and with people who've recently left lockup. Public Health New Mexico's Hannah Colton spoke with the school's director,
7: Kimberly Pena Hansen We knew we had to prevent our plane from crashing. That was our first goal. The second goal, however, was to ensure a pathway for adults statewide that were attending schools.
3: Why do you think the movement to cap the age of public school funding happened? I mean, was that just arbitrary or are there criticisms that you've heard of your program or programs like yours?
7: This is not new at all. It's been something of concern to many legislators. The use of K-12 funding to fund adults. And this has been something that's been on the back burner for a long time. We were not ready for it to happen that quickly, though, and without the chance and opportunity to really discuss it first.
3: What else do you want lawmakers to keep in mind about the role that your program plays in the community?
7: We are at the intersection of criminal justice reform, recidivism, education, adult education, and mental health and wellness Some people out there say opportunities like this should not be
3: offered to people who are behind bars, that incarceration is supposed to be punishment only. What's your response to that line of thinking? I invite these kinds of questions.
7: The bottom line is that these are students and families that are in our communities. These are parents of students that are in schools statewide. These are individuals who have suffered generations of incarceration and trauma and drug addiction and lack of resources and access to education. I don't want to focus on that without saying that our students come with incredible strengths and you can't disconnect people from the community.
3: Kimberly Pena Hansen, thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Hannah. In her more recent years, she became and we were all enlightened to all the historical absences of reality for black people. And she became very bitter about her education.
4: Well, and she cared so much about equality, about justice, about people being treated well and fairly and being seen and recognized and heard, right? Her learning progressed on those ideas, which shows in her journalism work through and through. This is KUNM. I'm Elaine Baumgardal. Throughout U.S. history, industries that dump toxic waste into the air,
3: water, and soil put it in neighborhoods where poor people of color live. Advocates from historic neighborhoods in Albuquerque are calling for a real chance to make changes to the city's zone
8: Ordinance. As Public Health New Mexico's Hannah Colton reports, they say the city's planning process was
3: racially biased and ignored their concerns in favor of developers. Bianca and Sinias grew up in Mountain View, a semi-rural area in the South Valley where her family planted gardens and raised goats and horses. It wasn't until later that she learned about the long history of contamination there chemicals put out by the military, and industries that operated too close to churches and schools. We have areas where communities gather,
8: and they're breathing in and eating the dirt and smelling these toxins. So they're seeing higher rates of asthma. You're seeing different kind of learning disabilities in our children.
3: Mountain View, San Jose, Martinez Town, those are among the historic neighborhoods that have long been zoned for heavy commercial and industrial use alongside family homes. The city and Bernalillo County kicked off a big redesign of the zoning code back in 2015. Officials said the old one was too complicated, too many hurdles for developers. And Cines, who has a master's degree in planning from UNM, says the process was not inclusive from the start. She remembers an early meeting where planners handed out maps and stickers and asked people to mark what zoning should go where. People were
8: just putting stickers everywhere. For example, they would put stickers for industry in San Jose. And being that we're from those communities, we said, well, San Jose already has its fair share of toxin emitting industry. Why don't we put these over here by the uh, country club area? So my point is with that, the city and the county with their out-of-state consultant went in already with these
3: predetermined zoning codes of what they wanted. Encinias and other organizers looked at sign-in sheets for eight public meetings the city held back then. They found that the vast majority of people at those meetings identified as white. Less than a quarter were Hispanic, and hardly anyone there was Native American. They brought these concerns to city council, asking for materials to be made in Spanish, asking for better outreach, and ultimately to slow the process. But the council went ahead and approved the new zoning code in late 2017.
8: So what we believe is that the city was very strategic about really not wanting
3: the kind of participation that they claim that they do. Community organizers continued to ask the city to sit down with them to establish a task force that could identify major issues in the existing zoning code and how to fix them. So far, it hasn't happened. Bianca Encinias points out that actions like this, that disregard concerns from poor communities of color, are coming from both the conservative and progressive officials at the city.
8: These are mostly white men, right? No different from the founding of this country. To me, it's a modern form of manifest destiny. They're going to redevelop our communities for us and not
3: have us engaged in the process. Encinias says residents like her aren't anti-development. They just want to say in what development looks like before it goes in next door. For KUNM, I'm Hannah Colton.
1: She taught us a lot, woke us up to a lot of things.
5: Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, I think we've always been involved with volunteering and different social issues, but I think Hannah's awareness really brought it into focus more, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And we weren't doing as much as we should be doing to fight injustice and inequality.
4: Those are such tough conversations to have with your parents, I can imagine. And I think it's so brave of her just to want to speak with you guys about it directly.
1: Yeah, I know it was hard for her. I know she realized it was hard for us to hear at times. Yeah,
5: obviously she wasn't afraid to bring things up. and I think we uh, we did our best to try to be open and understand where she was coming from and where our blind spots were.
4: I imagine that even though those conversations were uncomfortable, that that was actually part of a process of you all being close.
5: Yeah, I, I think we were able to talk and about some very emotional issues, and uh, still love each other.
4: When you're thinking about Hannah as a reporter, as a journalist, did that change your perspective on media, on journalism?
1: Oh, yeah. I had never really thought about how hard of a job that was in so many ways. And as I have listened to some of her recordings on her phone of timestamps day after day, essentially, of her interviewing all these people and then, you know, trying to put those pieces and pull the important pieces out and just the logistics of being a reporter blows my mind, but then the emotional load that you have to maintain and deal with with all the information that you're hearing and all the issues that these people are going through or injustices that they've suffered or I have a lot more understanding and empathy for what reporters are up against and the challenges you face and it's a very difficult job that's for sure
5: very important job i don't think our democracy could survive without independent media that as they say speaks truth to power and Mm -hmm. that's an absolute necessity
3: hi i'm hannah colton the news director and a public health reporter at kunm Every Friday since early April, protesters with millions for prisoners and other groups have gathered with bullhorns and signs taped on their cars, demanding the release of prisoners from crowded conditions. Here's organizer Celinda Guerrero outside the Las Lunas prison in late April. Guerrero's husband, who was also out protesting that day, was later arrested for a technical probation violation after one of the first Black Lives Matter marches of the summer. She says his arrest was unlawful retaliation for their activism. We checked back in with the Free Them All crew at an action last month at the University of New Mexico. They were pushing for the state's public education retirement board to divest from private prisons and ICE detention.
4: deportation.
3: There have been COVID outbreaks in prisons across the state, including hundreds in Otero and Cibola counties. At KUNM, we know media coverage can affect who gets life-saving resources and attention in a crisis. We know that people behind the walls have often borne the brunt of the inequitable systems that got us to this point. That's why we're doing our best to lift up these stories and ask tough questions of the government officials who are responsible for prisoner safety. Thanks for listening.
0: Khalil here again. We worked around the clock for a lot of last year, and our team became really close. Host and reporter Nash Jones went out last month to collect everyone's favorite Hannah memories.
2: I'm Ty Bannerman. I am the executive producer and often
9: host of Let's Talk New Mexico. Do you have a specific memory of Hannah Colton that stands out to you?
2: One of the moments
9: that I was
2: so impressed with her, and there were many... I was doing a show on the election, and there was a technical issue with the phone line, and our guest was not able to come on the show. We had about 15 minutes of no content.
10: I'm Kaveh Movahead I was handling the phone system. Hannah was in the producer's chair. We weren't really sure what was going to happen. Hannah said, I know what to do, and she jumped up and ran to the news booth, had our engineer plug her into the show, and she and Ty kind of just... Wrapped.
2: And she was so knowledgeable and sharp and sounded completely relaxed that it worked. I'm going to be speaking to Hannah Colton, our news director. Hannah, are you there? Yes, I am. So tell me a little bit about the kind of election coverage that we can expect.
3: This is going to be an election
2: day unlike
3: one we've covered. We've heard from President Trump. He's refused to say outright that he'll accept the results of the election if he loses. He's also Mm -hmm. called on armies of poll watchers using this militaristic language. So there's a lot of concerns about what might happen in the days following the election. And it's something that we'll just have to stay on our toes. Before we run out of time here, I had one other piece of logistics to offer folks state officials say that now at this point five days until the election it's too late to rely on the postal service to deliver your ballot in time so mail-in voting effectively over but you can still take your absentee ballot to any polling station through saturday or on election day
2: I mean, that, to me, showcased her intelligence and her ability to just do what needed to be done, which I think was a lot of what made Hannah so special. It just felt very comfortable
10: in a very uncomfortable situation. It really was heroic. I'm sure I told her she saved the day. That is maybe a perfect example of her leadership in the newsroom. She had this sense of what was important and maybe a confidence that, you know, we can we could do anything. And she had that same kind of attitude, I think, where it came to reporting and also as being our news director. She jumped right into a role that she had n- no experience in and just figured out how to get it done. She wasn't afraid and kind of maybe encouraged the rest of us to work that way, too.
11: I'm Yasmin Khan. I'm a reporter and sometimes host of Let's Talk New Mexico. I was hired out of the blue to KUNM while I was in quarantine, and Hannah showed up with her recorder and all this equipment so I could start reporting, and I just have this memory of her being so chipper, and she was like the brightest person that looked me in the eye. We were talking about the pandemic and how scary everything was, and... She wished me luck learning Audition.
9: Which is the audio editing software we use.
11: Yeah. Hannah was so patient teaching me Audition by phone. She was the most understanding boss, in quotes, that I've ever had and never was angry with me, never made me feel stupid for not being able to very quickly understand this software Never questioned my instincts as a reporter. She encouraged me to highlight the voices of Spanish-speaking people in our community, undocumented people, kids and elders.
9: How do you think that experience will inform your career moving forward?
11: She has forever (laughs) spoiled me for any other editor who's going to try to restrict those voices because she was so adamant about having a wide range of people's experiences throughout the pandemic and throughout the uprising on air. As a woman of color, I've never had a supervisor who's taken me seriously. Hannah was that person. I've had many, many jobs, but I've never had a supervisor who's treated me with as much respect as Hannah has. So I'll always be looking for that kind of guidance in any person that I work for or work with in the future. When I found out about her passing, I felt that I didn't have the right to have such grief because I didn't know her as much as everyone else. But that's when I started working with the therapist who reminded me that I was not only grieving the person that I knew, but I was grieving the fact that I was so happy to have found somebody that was going to be a potential lifelong friend. And so my grief was based in and is based in not only the person I knew, but the person that I wanted to know.
9: I'm Nash Jones. I'm the host of NPR's Morning Edition at KUNM, and I'm also a reporter in the afternoon. I feel so fortunate to have started as a reporter. I had been a host for a few years before, but I started as a reporter in January of last year. And to have my skills as a reporter be formed in collaboration with Hannah and her values, which were so strong, and I always felt like I could trust her, that she would check my sourcing and make sure that I didn't just have the easy source that was accessible, the, you know, quote unquote expert in some field or the spokesperson for this or that organization. She was regularly saying, you know, Do you have the voice of the folks who are getting impacted by this policy, that are impacted by the work this organization is doing? Because that's what's going to make the difference in terms of your reporting, uh, making an impact on the community and being a public service. She also was always pushing me to ask the tough questions. She was brave and was not afraid to go there, especially with a source that was an elected official or a spokesperson, somebody who's, you know, this is their job to answer these kinds of questions. And I don't necessarily have that inherently in me. I need to be encouraged, and especially being so new and not being sure, like, how to deliver a question like that, to stay calm and push on somebody and hold somebody to account. And she would edit my questions sometimes. And she would throw in, she'd be like, you gotta ask this question. This is essential. And I'd be like, I'm scared. I don't, oh, uh, I don't know. And she was like, you got this. You you need to go there. That's the job, Nash. You know, and I would go for it and I got better and better at it as I tried. And I'd come out of the interview and she would always follow up with me. How did that question go? How did it land? Talk with me through, how to improve that skill, but also, you know, cheerleading me on, like, good for you. Do you see where that question is so essential to that story making a difference? That's something that I'm going to carry with me. These days, sometimes I have to, I have to be that person in my own head. And sometimes, you know, I'll write a list of questions for somebody. And now I have Hannah in my head saying, you know, you got to ask that tough question. You got to go there. I mean, I think the story that I shared was when things got serious, but Hannah was really fun. She had a playful spirit. You know, she dyed her hair blue during the pandemic. She started wearing all these funky patterns, dancing into the newsroom. Things would get really tense. You know, it's a deadline-driven profession. And sometimes you've kind of, you're typing away and you forget to breathe. And sometimes I'd be doing that. And I'd hear Hannah's beautiful singing voice pipe up from the corner. I think about driving around the city, dropping off press passes with all of the reporters. And Hannah was taking a quick break from protest coverage and was like, I'm at my house, come by. I swung by and she was on her porch putting on rollerblades. And, you know, I hadn't seen rollerblades in decades. And she'd picked them up and was saying, you know, this is uh, something I'm trying to bring some fun to my day. Because, I mean, it's just hard stuff that we're going through right now. And I would be remiss if I didn't make sure that that aspect of her personality was highlighted too, because yeah, she was fierce and she asked the tough questions and she wasn't afraid to acknowledge just the hard stuff, but she was also always down to bring in that fun and that laughter and find some kind of balance there.
12: My name is Taylor Velazquez and I was a student reporter at KUNM for about two years. I remember Hannah, when I started at M. she just took me under her wing, and I was just overwhelmed, you know, starting a new internship in radio, which I never thought I would be in radio, so that was a whole learning curve, but also juggling the school. I guess one day I just felt so frustrated, and she came over to me, and she sat on the newsroom couch, and we just had a heart-to-heart about how I was feeling at M, how I was feeling about school. And I was unfortunately going through a thing with school where a professor had made an insensitive joke about sexual assault, and I was telling her how upset I was, and she always encouraged me to go after what I believed in and never back down in what I believe. I always take that advice still to this day. She was tough in her beliefs, as she should be, and she never backed down in what she believed in, but she still approached people with empathy and compassion, and she always wanted to know people for who they were and that's who Hannah was you know she showed up truly as herself she was like one of those rare people who are just kind and they truly listen to people and they truly see people so I have her as a mentor and I'm really glad I did because I can carry that energy throughout my career and who I want to be as a person.
0: I'm Khalil Aikolona I am the host producer of No More Normal at KUNM. So I came on in September of 2019. Hannah and I got to know each other and it was funny because one moment she was kind of taking a break from her standing desk and she was doing dance moves and telling me how she started a dance class. And I had a performance at the TANX and I told her about it and stuff, but Hannah showed up and I was like, that's, that's really cool. And as I was doing my thing, I tend to like pay attention and look at the whole crowd and she was just grooving, you know? She so was like, that's, that's really cool. I like your style, you know? And I was like, wow, because a lot of times in workplaces, you become work friends with people, and then that friendship develops into something else, if it does at all. And kind of felt like that was the beginning of something. And so shortly after that, a few months later, here we are, bam, in COVID. And it's just a heavy, heavy, heavy workload for us all. And Hannah hit me up, and she's like, are you home? I'm like, yeah. She's like, hey, well, I'm going to come by and see how you're doing. And at the time, people who I knew who were working, their supervisors weren't doing anything like that, barely reaching out to check up on them to see how they were. And we sat on my porch and we talked about everything except work. And just in that conversation, we got to really get to know each other well. To me, that just showed that, okay, this is more than just about your boss checking in on you to make sure you're capable of working still. She was checking in on Khalil, not Khalil, her employee. Not Khalil the host, how's he holding up, you know? Not Khalil the rookie into journalism. It was, Khalil, how are you? And that wasn't happening much at the time, even with friends. So I deeply appreciated that, you know, a word that people use, it's a complimentary word when we talk about someone's personality or their effect on others, is thoughtful. But a lot of times I feel like people can act thoughtfully. Are they necessarily thoughtful? Her actions told me that she was. She thought outside of herself. And really, how can I consider how other people are feeling? How can I consider how other people are doing? It was just this ease of, hey, we're all in here doing this work. She recognized that most of us were pretty green when it came to reporting. She didn't make us feel bad. never made me feel bad for it. She never made me feel like, you don't know this. You should know this. It was a teaching moment and here these people into this profession that I've mastered and continue to master. Let me show them tips or tricks. And how many times did Hannah sacrifice a nice evening to help us out without complaint, without any, I wish you guys would get, no, it was none of that. It was, what do you need? I got you. That's rare. Hopefully after this experience, we all are continuing to endure More people will begin to take that approach. You know, a lot of times when people close to you pass, I tend to think now really go out there and live life, not just on your behalf, but on theirs for everything that they ever wanted for you go out there and live. What can I take from my experience with this human being and add it to my life, not only in remembrance, but to honor them for touching my life. I'm honored to have known Hannah for as briefly as we knew each other, but for as deeply as we did.
6: I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm the new news director at KUNM. She did a series of interviews with people who were unhoused in the pandemic. I was really captivated by how she captured them as whole human beings, the little details. It was like these little thumbnail sketches of people, and it really brought us into their lives immediately. And it was unsparing about the indignities that they suffer. But I was really struck by this one older woman she interviewed, Anne Marie, who is 78. It was the loss of her service dog that really cut me. Trying to get
10: my service dog back.
3: She says her chocolate brown dachshund, Brutus,
10: was stolen about a month ago. When I had him, he was up to snuff on all these shots. And he loves me. Yeah. And he's trained because he knows I fall. And he stays right by my side and barks trying to get somebody's attention to help me up. My best friend. And these stole my dog
3: newcomb has been sleeping on the street because she says the shelters treat her terribly she can't get around too well with a bad leg in the years she's been without a home in albuquerque she says she's had nine cell phones stolen and had all her clothes and prescription meds
10: taken well they haven't stolen my sense of humor but i get sick and tired of can't say i don't try
3: She showed me her one bus pass tucked under her sock, saving it for when she really needs it.
10: uh, These are my few belongings. I don't have a lot.
3: Newcomb says the most help she's gotten has been from church folks who put her up in a motel for a couple nights.
10: She loved being able to
3: watch TV news
10: and the Weather Channel. Yeah, I didn't hardly sleep. I was seeing what was going on in the So she wasn't just the
6: sum of these horrible things that happened to her. And so often, I think we miss that key element when we report on tough issues. I also could tell, like, I just sat there thinking, like, how long did Hannah sit and talk to them to get all these details? It just showed she had this amazing empathy and emotional intelligence. And it's the kind of journalism I really admire. She was present. That seems like a really simple thing, but that's not always there when people go out and do interviews, she was present to them in that moment. That makes a big difference. You can hear it in the tape. There's a lot of talk right now about the need to get away from what we call extractive journalism. If we parachute into communities we don't really know anything about and it's not our world, there's just been an increasing amount of talk in our profession about how you should not do that. And Hannah just seemed to model that really well. I'm Marisa DeMarco. I'm the
4: executive producer for No More Normal, or it was, and I was a reporter here at KUNM. In the pandemic, she had a focus on people who are without shelter. In that reporting, she didn't want to just hear what the city's intentions and plans are. She wanted to go out and actually talk to folks. That reporting is so important as opposed to just taking public officials' word for it but also trying to do it well and trying to do it in a way that doesn't feel like you've taken something from somebody else or that it's exploitive or extractive. So we were making plans around going out and she wanted to bring waters and she wanted to bring hand sanitizer and snacks and masks and give them to people. And there's ethical concerns around that for reporters. There's all this talk about, well, will somebody feel like they have to talk to you in order to get access to these resources you've brought online? Like, are you holding a bottle of water in and snacks like hostage in exchange for a story. And so we strategize about that in advance. And it's like, you know, I think the answer is just to bring enough that we give it to everybody and make it super clear that nobody needs to talk to us. Like they can just have these things. And then also if they feel like they want to share their experience and offer their expertise, they're welcome to. And so we did. We went out. I was mostly just handing out snacks and waters and explaining who we were and what we were doing and just listen to her give interviews and she would just take all the time that you need after that she'd sit down with people and let them like get to know her a little bit, let them understand the angle that she was reporting from, and ease them into the conversation, let them tell her anything that they wanted to tell her about and consider it all very thoughtfully. It takes a long time to do that work well. It's not like you just show up, put a mic in someone's face for five minutes and walk away. You're going to hang out with a person that you're talking to for like 40 minutes. And I liked so much watching her in action always. Not afraid, super interested in meeting people in a way that felt good and comfortable to them. You know, often by the end they would be smiling and I don't know, it just felt like a new acquaintance step or a new friendship or something had formed, you know.
0: Thanks for tuning in today for our memorial episode for former news director Hannah Colton. We want to make sure to mention that if while you're listening to this episode, you're having hard feelings, there are people you can talk to at any time. New Mexico's crisis and access line is available 24 seven at 1-855-NM-CRISIS, 1-855-NM-CRISIS. Sometimes it helps to talk to someone you don't know. We'll have a full list of local resources on the post for this show online at KUNM.org. And if you'd like to talk to someone you do know, a reminder that there is an in-person memorial for Hannah open to the public tonight at 7 p.m. at Tiguey Park, including opportunities to sing together, share memories and process our collective loss. 2020 was one huge news cycle, and Hannah did some of the most important work of her career in that time. Next, you'll hear from former KUNM reporter and Nomono executive producer Marisa DeMarco talk to someone Hannah interviewed as she reported on the racial justice uprising. And you'll hear some of the clips from Hannah's award-winning reporting.
13: I'm Melanie Yazzie. I'm an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. I also do a lot of community organizing with a local grassroots, indigenous-run organization called the Red Nation.
4: Do you have memories of Hannah or her work that really stand out in your mind? I gained a lot of knowledge about
13: her ethics as a journalist, but also her power and her commitment as a journalist during the summer because KUNM and then the Daily Lobo, the news outlets that were attached to UNM, were both doing the best reporting on what was happening on the ground. I just remember seeing Hannah at a lot of the actions, even the dangerous ones. You were also there too. The care that you both showed with telling the stories of Indigenous folks and black folks who were out on the streets being terrorized by those white militias, by
3: the police. As the evening rain slowed to a sprinkle, protesters called it a night around 1015, many walking with drenched signs back up central toward the middle of campus. Minutes later, the Albuquerque Police Department radio dispatch indicated officers had seen men with long guns east of UNM. Then, just west of campus, protesters came upon a group of about nine mostly white men on the side of the road with body armor and assault style weapons. Several protesters were upset and verbally confronted them. Others urged their fellow demonstrators to ignore the provocation and keep moving. We
14: have a peaceful protest! Go home!
3: The men said they were from the New Mexico Civil Guard. That's a militia group that made a showing at an Albuquerque anti shutdown protest in April. A post on their Facebook page Monday said members will, quote, be protecting local businesses every night this week amid what they called violent protests. In the last week, Albuquerque has seen several peaceful protests calling for an end to police killings of black people. Some vandalism and violence did break out late Sunday night, but it was well after most protesters had left. On Central last night, it was tense between the armed militiamen and unarmed protesters for about 15 minutes. Then protesters moved on. APD vehicles were blocks away on the perimeter of the rally route. No officers intervened. Shortly after, a shot rang out near Central and Yale. It was unclear from where. A helicopter circled overhead as police dispatchers continued to flag that groups of armed men were potentially in the area until about 11.30 p.m. By that time, protesters had cleared the streets.
13: It felt like I could actually trust the way that you were reporting on things. I do a lot of interviews with journalists, and they always cut out what I usually think is the most important content when we're talking about these kinds of difficult issues, but that never happened with Hannah. She just wanted to listen and to hear and to really understand what was going on, so I just gained really deep respect for her and the way that she reported I'm very used to having adversarial relationships with journalists, white journalists, <laughs> yeah. for the most part. And that never was the case. And so I just deeply appreciate it.
4: She was just down to, like, take the time to really talk, to really listen, to really understand. It wasn't like she was coming, she was just getting a little bit that she needed for her story that she already had in her mind. She was coming to learn. She was coming with all the way open ears, and she was receptive, and made people feel like they were being heard, regardless of what the topic is. That was just maybe something she was doing all the time in her reporting, you know?
13: It sounds like it. I mean, I absolutely had that experience with I remember sometime in the middle of the summer, this reporter, he's part of like the Southwest Region desk for NPR, he interviewed me in our backyard about the New Mexico Civil Guard, the same things that I had been talking to Hannah about over the previous month. I think this was about a year ago, almost exactly. He just parachuted in like a lot of those journalists. They were doing these sensationalist pieces about the Civil Guard like they were doing about a lot of the FASH who were starting to organize and show militia presence, armed militia presence at protests and street actions. And the questions he asked me, he didn't even know anything about Native issues. He didn't really care from what I could tell he just asked me about like red chili or something with New Mexico and I'm like you do realize these people are trying to kill us and we actually live in the same community where they know where I live like you can't be so careless with the questions that you're asking me and he would like a lot of journalists I've had experiences with he would ask me questions he would ask me like a softball question and then he would go in with a question that would be potentially compromising for me or the other people who are out on the streets and then he left all his trash on our back porch. I sat with this man for an hour and a half, and what he actually included in the report from what I said, which again is my blanket experience with journalists, was just... The least interesting, the most watered down thing. I was so irate. I actually called his editor. I don't do this very often at NPR and filed a complaint about how he conducted the interview. And part of what prepped me for being empowered enough to like push back against the way that he was interviewing me was because of my experiences with Hannah the whole previous month. Mm. Because Hannah was not like that. Hannah understood what was going on and understood the danger, the real danger. It wasn't hyperbole, right? She understood the real danger. She was asking really smart but ethical, careful questions. An hour and a half with Hannah would end up in some sort of report that was fact based. There was no angle. She wasn't trying to have like a gotcha moment. I felt like I could actually trust her. So then, when I had an experience with this other reporter who was asking me about pretty much the exact same experiences, I was just like, you know, you know what like I don't want to talk to these people anymore I kind of just want to talk to Hannah and Marissa about these things because I feel like there's racism happening all the time in these conversations or these interviews I do with journalists and so yeah my experience with Hannah's willingness to listen to take the time and her deep understanding and her respect she had respect when she was
4: interviewing me. To add some context, if people don't remember, there's lots of marches and we started seeing these guys show up in camo and they have guns. They have a real presence. I remember being out there to cover marches and seeing these dudes and just being like, who Who are yeah, these have, people? We
12: have vehicles where we can get over here quick.
4: In a video posted on Facebook, at least
3: six APD officers stand with a group of men, some armed, outside the Jackson Wink Academy in downtown Albuquerque as they prepare to attend the protest on Monday, June 1st. MMA fighter John Jones says his guy's job is to stop as much shenanigans as possible with their size and their voice. A police officer tells them to take care of each other and the people of Albuquerque. He warns about people who are, quote, just dummies.
15: They see crime with opportunity. I'm sure you guys can by talking to them.
3: There's not a lot of specific plans in the four-minute conversation caught on video. Jones says his guys won't be having their guns out. The next day, in an emailed statement to Santa Fe, New Mexican reporter Danny Prokop, APD spokesperson Gilbert Gallego said the meeting with the group was not department-sanctioned and that APD, quote, opposes vigilante actions and attempts by civilians to intervene in planned peaceful protests. He said they, quote, discourage the presence of armed civilians at protests, which has the potential to escalate violence, not prevent it. On Tuesday, hundreds more peaceful protesters marched through downtown Albuquerque. Voices on the APD dispatch radio mentioned heavily armed friendlies, pointing guns down from a rooftop overlooking the march, raising more questions as to whether the department is coordinating with armed civilians.
5: We have worked with um, APD for many years now.
3: This is Robert Whitman. He's with a group called the New Mexico Patriots, whose mission, he says, is to defend the U.S. Constitution. He said his group was out during last Monday's protest supporting police officers.
5: I see it as they're devoting 99 percent of their time to the peaceful protest. And now with us being in communication with law enforcement, we can inform. We don't necessarily have to get involved. And and that's actually one of our first rules of engagement is not to engage unless there's imminent threat.
3: Whitman says a few business owners contacted them after a small group of people broke windows and stole from businesses downtown last Sunday night, May 31st. He blames Antifa agitators for making chaos though some patriots carry weapons Whitman says they don't like the term militia and don't associate with hate groups.
5: And you don't see us too often we're usually behind the scenes and we usually want to support law enforcement.
3: APD spokesperson Gilbert Gallego said in an email that APD administration has not authorized or condoned coordination with any civilian groups related to the protests. He did not respond specifically about the so-called friendlies we heard about on the police scanner Tuesday. We know there was one other armed civilian group out last Monday in Albuquerque, a statewide militia group called the New Mexico Civil Guard. John Burks, who's referred to on their Facebook page as captain of the Bernalillo County Company, said they usually give law enforcement. A heads up that they're coming.
9: But no, we didn't have any meetings with APD like the uh, Wayne guys did.
3: Arthur Bell was helping facilitate last Monday's Black Lives Matter protest.
1: I mean, it's a peaceful demonstration, and we feel like any showing of weaponry of any kind defeats the purpose in some ways. A
3: group of Native American activists from the Red Nation say armed white men tracked them during Monday's demonstration and afterwards threatened them outside their own office space down the street. They say the men accused them of trying to break in while one made a move to pull a handgun from his pants. KUNM reporters have covered nightly protests since they began over a week ago. We've noted aggressive shows of militarized force by APD against unarmed people following protests on May 28th and May 31st. Armed militia groups seemed to move around unimpeded, even in a case on June 1st, when a shot was reported fired in an area where groups of men with long guns had been seen. For KUNM... I'm Hannah Colton.
4: It was making people very anxious to just be around dudes in camo who have long rifles and sashes of bullets. Plus, also feeling anxious about what are the police going to do tonight? Is this going to be a tear gas one? How big a response are police going to have in these moments? And you could feel it, like the sense of danger on the streets was, ugh.
13: I don't think I've actually ever gone through something like that. I actually said this in the first interview I did with Hannah that aired on KUNM. It was like we were being hunted. Yeah, it was,
3: it was a crazy summer. Across the street from the monument, a couple hundred people gathered to hear prayers, songs, and accounts of the harms inflicted by Oñate and his legacy.
16: It hurt 20 years ago to relive it. And
3: it's hurting the Alita Paisano Suazo, known as Tweedy, is from the pueblos of Acoma and Laguna. She recounted the atrocities against Native Americans, for which Oñate was eventually convicted and banished from New Mexico in 1614.
16: Oñate was responsible for killing hundreds of Acoma men, women, and children, and the brutal sentencing of their survivors, which also included the cutting off of the men's right foot.
3: Speakers voiced their solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. They said this was the beginning of efforts to work with local officials to have the Onate statue removed, along with local Confederate monuments. As that event wrapped up, several dozen people were across the street on and around the monument. Amid protesters stood several members of the New Mexico Civil Guard, gripping assault-style rifles. That's the militia group that's shown up to Black Lives Matter protests, saying they're there to protect property and deter violence. Protesters put a chain around the statue, and one took a pickaxe to the base. A civil guardsman carrying a long gun jumped up to stop him. Some protesters pushed back. Things got chaotic for a few minutes.
17: Everybody, can we just, can we just back up and ignore them, please?
3: One man wearing military fatigues repeatedly reached for his handgun. This next part I didn't see directly, but pieced together from videos and eyewitness accounts. As a group of protesters heaved on the chain around the statue's neck, Stephen Baca threw a young woman to the ground from behind her. She hit her head on the sidewalk. He ran off. Someone hit him with a skateboard. He sprayed pepper spray in another woman's face. Someone else tackled him. Then he fired. Wounding a man in the back and near his shoulder. Several militia men then formed a ring around Baca with their backs to him as he sat on the ground using his phone. About three minutes after the shooting, APD, riot police and SWAT arrived with two armored vehicles. Officers ordered Baca and at least four militia men down on the ground and handcuffed them while a street medic and other protesters continued to tend to the man bleeding on the pavement. It was another 5 minutes or so before an ambulance arrived and took the man to the hospital. APD ordered people away from the crime scene. They used tear gas and flashbangs and fired non-lethal rounds. No one in the crowd was brandishing guns or other weapons. People hung around a bit longer before dispersing around 9:30. We asked APD spokesman Gilbert Gallegos last week why police don't intervene when armed militia groups intimidate and provoke protesters.
2: We have monitored them. We've talked to them. We've tried to figure out, you know, but when they're out there with weapons, you know, unless they're committing an assault, what are we supposed to do?
3: Mayor Tim Keller says the city will remove the statue in Old Town for public safety reasons, quote, until the appropriate civic institutions can determine next steps.
13: We all came out of that, even though I didn't really know Hannah before the summer. I feel like we went through something together, even though Hannah's no longer with us. And I just have a sense of, like, deep solidarity, especially with you all and those of us who were fighting for our lives, actually, last summer.
4: Just that anxiety, the dread. I remember when the militia said they were going to protest your house. We were so intensely worried. And they said they were going to protest the station previously. I remember. I had sat outside of front of the station with this very microphone just waiting for them to come. And they never came, and that's great. But just that level of dread and anxiety, which it's frustrating because I know that's what they're trying to provoke. Right. But of course it does provoke it, right? It it does. I'm not going to lie. I was scared. We were scared. (laughs) They scared
13: us. Scared for my life. And I was scared for your guys' lives too. (laughs) Yeah. It was
4: really tense. And so being able to, in that time, in that fear, in that anxiety, to stay committed to talking about this and to talking about it publicly and to keep attending those actions, Some newsrooms refused to send reporters to any of these things because they thought it was too dangerous. If we had chosen not to go, there would not have been reporters there. And then what you get to tell the story is the police news release that is in your inbox right after. Yep. And if we're concerned about the police trying to justify whatever behaviors and actions they took at any moment then that means that the narrative you're getting from the police is going to be skewed towards those goals, yep. right? And so then there's not any real reporting on what's going down out there, right? And that's why we felt so committed to just keep going, keep seeing, stay the whole time, stay till the end. It felt really important. I and mean, I know it felt important to her, too,
13: you know? Well, you actually knew what was going on. Even though you were journalists who had, like, a commitment to reporting on what was going on and providing that balance to actually reporting, you all had the exact same experience with the violence and the dread and just the internal anguish that it caused, I think, for all of the rest of us who are out on the streets, not reporting, but just trying
4: to engage in political action, right, to stop police from killing. What did it mean to you, the kind of journalistic decision-making, the kind of respect that Hannah treated you with? What did it mean to you that there was just at least one or two people in media that you felt like were going to get the words right? Hmm.
13: This may sound like a contradiction, but something that I have learned over the last seven years of doing deeply embedded community organizing with the Red Nation is that actually being really vocal and being really open in the media about something like what was going on it makes you safer. I mean, that may sound like very strange. I mean, yeah, I got targeted and doxxed because I did that. But at the same time, speaking about that publicly and being able to do it with a journalist like Hannah, who actually treated that story with the kind of care and ethics that it deserved, like truth-telling out in public, there's actually something about that that strangely, I don't know if the word protect is the right word, but... It makes it so that the next time something like that happens, those people have to think twice because they're like, oh man, this lady's gonna talk about this in the media what we're doing, right? And so they actually have to think differently, tactically and strategically about how they're doing things. Even though it was very terrifying for me personally to be targeted by these dudes, they put all of their rage on me. They put all of their rage on you and Hannah in a way. Then they weren't doing that to other people necessarily. And I was like, I don't really want this to be happening right now, but I'll take these hits because their gaze isn't on all of these other people. It's scary to go public, but in the hands of journalists like Hannah, this is the right thing to do. We're scared together doing this. (laughs) I could tell she was scared. But like, we're going to be brave and we're going to have the courage to tell this story in public because it may actually shift what's coming down the line in a way that maybe as many people won't die or the violence won't escalate at such a large magnitude. And so in that darkness and in that fear i guess of what the unknown was in terms of like what these dudes were going to be doing to us as the summer unfolded i just really appreciate hannah's commitment to being brave i was like i am not going to be afraid of these dudes even though i'm afraid of these dudes (laughs) because they have guns and i don't but hannah was like i'm gonna go there with you we're gonna be in this together and that seriously it made all the difference I have somebody in this with me who is, like, facing a lot of heat and is also in real danger, but they're going to go there with me. That is super rare. Yeah. Not just from a reporter. That is super rare for anybody to do that. Yeah. Very brave. Hannah's, like, very brave person.
4: Right. Thanks for saying that. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Aw. I feel like I'm going to cry. Yeah.
6: <laughs> It's okay. There's a lot of crying in these. <laughs> sure, there is. This is KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. The New Mexico Civil Guard has gotten a lot of media attention this week after escalating tensions at a protest in Old Town that led to a shooting. The heavily armed, mostly white militia group was the subject of a lengthy Albuquerque Journal profile over the weekend, as well as an NPR story that was set to run during this segment. We've chosen not to air it because we feel it leaves out crucial information, mischaracterizes events that KUNM has covered, and provides a plot platform for thinly veiled racism. Instead, KUNM News Director Hannah Colton spoke with Melanie Yazzie, an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico, about all this media coverage of militias.
18: You know, the reason why we have reacted the way that we have to the New Mexico Civil Guard is because there's a long history of white vigilante violence against Native people, particularly on sheltered relatives in border towns, Albuquerque counts as a border town, although some may not think that it does.
3: In your view, should media outlets be seeking out these men's perspectives at all? Like, is there a, a responsible way to go about it? No,
18: you don't try to humanize fascism, you try to stop it. Because what fascism is, it's just the language of violence. It's racism, but it's racism taken to another level. And the fact that fascism right now has the state behind it in the form of like Donald Trump and his administration, if you have state power behind your politics, then that means that journalists should be questioning, because that's the side that has more power. It's not the side that's out in the streets, you know, unarmed, trying to change the world with pennies with nothing, you know, which is what a lot of leftists and folks who are doing racial justice work are attempting to do. You shouldn't be humanizing fascism, and it should just be called for what it is.
3: Melanie Azzi, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a special two hour episode of No More Normal, honoring and remembering former KUNM News Director, Hannah Colton. Stay with us for the next hour when we'll hear more from Hannah's family and friends, along with her colleagues and sources. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll be right back. Yeah. Welcome back to No More Normal. I'm Kalio Le If you're just joining us, you can listen to the first part of today's special two-hour episode online at KUNM.org by finding this episode's post on our homepage or queuing up the station's two-week archive. I'll continue this hour with our remembrance of the life and legacy of former KUNM News director and reporter, Hannah Colton, who died by suicide in November of 2020. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can call the New Mexico Crisis and Access line at 1-855-NM-CRISIS. That's 855-NM-CRISIS. Crisis, Or if this show is bringing up other heavy feelings and you'd like to talk to someone, there are people waiting to hear from you at the state's warm line, which is open until 11 o'clock tonight. You can reach them at 1-855-4NM-7100. Again, 855-4NM-7100. If you didn't catch those, find all of the resources we're sharing throughout today's program online at KUNM.org. Also, following today's episode, if you'd like to gather with others in Remembering Hannah, we invite you to join us at Tigue Park in Albuquerque tonight at 7 p.m. Last year ushered in an unrelenting news cycle full of danger and threat. Hannah never lost sight of the people inside the story she was telling. You heard earlier about a shooting at the Onyate statue vigil and demonstration. Days after it happened, Hannah followed up with the parents of the man who was shot and brought their powerful perspective to KUNM's airwaves.
6: This is KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. The parents of an Albuquerque man who was shot near the Juan de Oñate statue in Old Town say Scott Williams, now hospitalized in stable condition, is a longtime activist for human rights and racial justice. Dan and Denise Williams were on scene as tensions escalated. They say earlier they had attended a prayer gathering for the removal of the monument across the street. Scott's father, Dan, is a retired paramedic and says after hearing shots fired, he was headed to tend to the victim when he realized that it was his son. They spoke with KUNM's Hannah Colton.
19: And so I started working on him to try to limit the loss of blood and do an assessment. We were probably there two minutes. He told me he was having a hard time breathing. And I said, okay, and I was putting him in a, in a better breathing position and no gloves. I'm totally bloody. At that point, I looked over, and it looked like a whole battalion of military was coming. The SWAT team has a paramedic on board, and uh, he came out with his bags, and he told me, get the hell out of there. And I told him that I was a retired paramedic, and this was my son, and we were going to work on him together. And he agreed with that. And so we worked together to stabilize him and get him loaded onto a uh, canvas sling to be then loaded onto the ambulance. But I was told by a couple of the cops to get the hell out of there. And, you know, while I was still working on my son, they were extremely rude and obnoxious. When I realized it was
16: Scott and Dan on the ground, and I walked across the street with my hands up, a cop came up in my face. I said, That man on the ground is my son, and the man working on him is my husband. And he told me, I don't give a fk if you're the Virgin Mary. You get the hell out of here. And he took whatever was in his hand, a baton or a rifle, and he put it on my chest and shoved me backwards.
19: In my opinion, the way the cops came in as a battalion just absolutely exacerbated the whole situation.
3: And what happened after Scott was taken away in the ambulance? What were those next hours like?
16: We raced down to the hospital. They wouldn't let us in. So we basically, for the next seven and a half hours, camped out on the dry woods and waited for word and called repeatedly the hospital, the ER, the police department, yeah. and got no
19: response. Because the police apparently had told them to not give any information out to anybody. I am extremely aggravated with the lack of information because of the police department.
16: Seven and a half hours later, about 3.30 in the morning, a police detective called Dan and told him that he should be able to get information from the hospital. And at that point, Dan called the ICU and they did respond and give us information and tell us what the status of Scott was. We took a big breath
3: and uh, came home. Is there anything you'd like to hear from local elected officials?
19: One thing that has become very obvious to me is the absolute militarization of the police. That has got to stop. When we train our police as soldiers, we, the public, become the enemy. If we're
16: going to survive as human beings and live in an equitable society, we can't be brutalized by the people who are sworn to protect and serve us.
3: Any other thoughts you've been having about Scott just reflecting during this time when you can't see him?
16: Scott is extremely active in activism and equality issues of every kind. He was at Standing Rock. He's always been very passionate about equality and human rights. And we support him in that completely. We have been taught these last two and a half weeks, three weeks, whatever it's been, that the Black Lives Movement has escalated to lament, to listen, to learn, and to leverage. And we want to leverage this situation
3: for change. Denise and Dan Williams, want to thank you so much for taking the time and sharing about this experience with me.
16: Thank you, Hannah, for talking to us. We appreciate you giving us a voice.
0: Lisa DeMarco spoke with Dan and Denise Williams again last month about what that conversation with Hannah meant to them.
16: She gave us the space to talk, and so we did. We talked a lot. (laughs) We hoped there were some things in there, in all of the things that we said that she could use.
4: Yeah, and I was on the phone with her. She was agonizing over which things to include because she (laughs) liked so much of it. Among the really compelling parts of that conversation was that I don't know that before that interview aired that people knew that you were there Mm -hmm. when it happened and that you, Mm -hmm. Dan, helped care for Scott right away in the field as a former paramedic.
20: Yes. that was a pretty traumatic experience, but we were able to deal with that. We still deal with it. But Hannah was able to accurately tell the story.
4: It is so hard, those kind of experiences, to take before the public. You're sharing something that has affected you profoundly with the community at large, and it matters a lot how that is handled and how it's cared and how you're heard. What concerns did you have, maybe, before doing that kind of conversation or thinking about being in the media?
20: As you're well aware of, a lot of the media can misconstrue a simple comment. And I think Hannah understood the situation. She was able to accurately report.
16: I think one of my big concerns going into that interview was that we were careful to communicate the truth, but also what needed to be said because as a result of that whole situation and Scott being shot, and I was concerned that we would not communicate that well, and throughout the interview, she guided us very well through that and helped us. She couldn't use everything. What she did use was the right things to use. They were the right words.
4: Do you have memories of having that conversation with Hannah and just what the experience was like for you and how it felt? Scott is the one that encouraged us to do the interview, and it was
16: a couple of days before he actually woke up and regained consciousness, so it was when he could respond, because we certainly were not going to do that interview without his permission and his approval and his consent. And he was able to do that. Yeah. It was in that first week. Yeah.
14: hmm
4: It was an emotional week, right? It was like a very it was
20: emotional week.
4: Just terrifying sometimes. It yeah.
20: But I think she handled it with a compassion and with passion and understanding.
16: She also
20: was very calming. The questions she asked,
16: her responses, she didn't add to our angst at all, she calmed us down and allowed us to speak and gave us that voice.
20: You know, I feel very badly that Hannah is gone because of the pressure that we see on people that are concerned with these issues, young people like Hannah, like Scott, and so many other people. And I deeply grieve her absence.
4: The reason we were out there is to create stories like the one that Hannah created with you guys and like the one that she created after the statute protest shooting, which is to try to see it all and to really tell the truth about it. Mm-hmm. The conversation that she had with you all humanized you mm-hmm. and humanized Scott as Mm. somebody's kid Mm. you were probably at the hospital and just worried about his health but Mm -hmm. in the immediate couple days afterwards it's almost like he becomes on social media or on memes by people who don't like him or the far right or whatever cartoonish and he becomes dehumanized through jokes and mean-spirited posts Having you on the air, it was like, no, this is a person. This is a person with parents. I think it added a way for the audience to connect to the human aspect of what you experienced and then also of him, you know.
20: And the human aspect of, yes, this is a person, a normal person with normal parents, but this is a person who has a passion for other human beings, for equality and justice for other human beings.
16: Hannah needs to know from the other side, and I'm sure she is aware, that we appreciate immensely and always will appreciate the fact that she gave us a voice and allowed us to speak the truth. And we appreciate that beyond anything we could ever communicate to Hannah, of course, but it was an important moment. And we appreciated it,
20: definitely appreciated not just our interview, but her voice mm-hmm. and in reporting everything.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, thank you, Dan and Denise Williams. Thank you, Marisa. <laughs>
0: KUNM News team made sure that Hannah's work in 2020 was entered into regional and national journalism contests. Her reporting cleaned up. We're not sure if she would care about this kind of thing very much. The work itself, serving your community, that's the prize, and most journalists know that. Regardless, we want to brag on Hannah a moment. Hannah Colton's coverage on the statue vigil and protest and the shooting that happened there won a national first place award from the Public Media Journalists Association. Her reporting on the racial justice protests in Albuquerque won a national first place award from the Federation of Press Women. Her stories also cornered eight, eight awards in the Regional Society of Professional Journalists competition. first part of this memorial special looking at Hannah Colton's journalism work and the impacts it had on her colleagues, the people she spoke to for stories, and some of the communities that KUNM serves. Hannah was, of course, more than the sum of her public works, more than a reporter. We return now to Marisa's conversation with Hannah's parents, Kathy and Brad Colton.
4: I was also thinking about how good she was with sound, and for me, my love of telling stories on the radio relates somewhat to my love for music, which is something that Hannah and I also shared. Can you talk a little bit about when you noticed her interest and enthusiasm for music or
1: even just for sound? She did love music. She loved to, even at a young age, dance and sing. And she loved being in the little kids' church choir. And she wanted to play the violin, so that started in first grade, I think, and she had played piano since kindergarten and loved that. Yeah, she just always had music in her life. She could never get enough of it. I mean, she did show choir, she did jazz, singing of classical, multiple instruments, you know, and she just always was very talented with music, and when she had teachers that didn't like something she was doing musically she she usually let them know that that was a problem
14: <laughs>
5: <laughs> i can remember how important it was when she started writing music how important that was to her to actually be able to write and
10: perform her own music
3: mm-hmm. it will be the very first time i will play on the radio
10: awesome And your job is radio, so that's yeah.
3: My job is radio, but I do only like talking and mostly interviewing other people. So.
21: I broke my fast with elderberry gummies. The coffee didn't last, so I grabbed my keys and went to get some. All understandable and fine Everyone's having to explain Themselves away all the time I locked my keys In the car again and I'm calling you Stranded and I left my rushed out late looking to dance wouldn't you say it's all understandable and fine everyone's trying not to give themselves Understandable Passing blindly by my kindred fellow I don't think we were meant to have the blues Like these have yellows How do you misunderstand me? Oh, help me count the way But to know me just for knowing Is a risk I'd like you to take It requires the kind of effort That's impossible to fake How do you misunderstand? But to know me just for now
10: Great. That was Hannah Colton.
1: She was president of every musical group she was in. She was performing at funerals and weddings when she was in elementary school. And so she was very comfortable and confident, incredibly confident, singing and dancing and that kind of thing in show choir. As a child, she was very confident and very much ready to be out there singing in front of people at a pretty young age.
4: You're thinking about Hannah, whether as a journalist or just as a person. And I know you're thinking about her as complex and spans years and stages of development and, I guess, different kind of iterations of this person, right, as she's growing. Is there something that you want people to know about Hannah?
5: Well, I think people would constantly, after she died, they would always say and write that she always lit up the room. She was such a bright light beyond her talents until her mental illness. She just had a zest for living and a love for people and being herself and being a free spirit and a loving person.
1: She saw the value in, like Brad said, being your own person, but also bucking the system and standing up to what you see is not right or offering ways of doing things that would be an improvement over the status quo and she always tried to do that that was part of her personality was to be very unique and do her own thing but yet find ways to make things better and I think that's a good lesson for all of us
4: Having all these conversations and talking through these memories with everybody for me, it makes her so close in my mind. Maybe that is part of what is happening as we have this conversation for you guys too. And I just really appreciate you taking the space for that to have this talk.
0: This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. This memorial episode might be bringing up heavy feelings for you. If you need to speak with someone about it, the folks at Agora Crisis Center are ready to listen. Reach out to them at 505-277-3013. We'll include all the resources and more on this post for this episode online at KUNM.org. So many friends and networks and communities she was a part of. If you didn't get a chance to share a memory of Hannah in this memorial special, local reporters Ryan Lowry and Margaret Wright set up a website, memorialforhannah.com. There, friends from all over the globe are sharing stories and photos. Hannah's parents, Brad and Kathy, tell us they love looking through them. If you are a part of Hannah's broader community, whether you knew her personally or only through the radio, you're invited to join in remembering her at a public, in-person memorial being held in Albuquerque tonight at 7 p.m. at Tigway Park. We'll gather to mourn, remember, and sing songs that Hannah selected for a community event she was planning before she passed. Teresa caught up with some of Hannah's friends in Albuquerque, starting with Maria Aaron Jones, who founded Albuquerque Zine Fest and also a long-running DIY performance space called the Tanix that Hannah hung out in a lot.
4: Is there a certain memory or a couple of memories that really stand out to you? Maybe it was the first time I met Hannah.
22: Hannah came to the Tanix and gave me that stink face. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny to me. And then she showed up again for Zine Fest and then she showed up again and again, you know, and then we became friends and I can't think of too many shows towards the end there that I didn't see Hannah there. And then we hung out a lot crafting. So Monday nights we would get together and talk about zines and craft. What kind of crafts did she do? Needlepoint. And then some zining. Hannah made a zine for Zine Fest and tabled at our last one that we had. So I got to watch her piece that together, and we talked about the content of that zine.
4: The zine Hannah made is called What Do Anti-Racist White People Do? And it was, like, strategies and resources for white people to think about how to engage with their own racism or to become actively anti-racist, right? Yes. And I think I remember... Seeing that zine, I mean, like, that's so bold and brave to make and yes. cool. It was also bold and
22: brave to have that be the only zine on our table. And I, I think Hannah actually gave one to the mayor, was like, keep your money.
4: <laughs> Here you go. She did. I was standing there when it happened. <laughs> and I was like, oh, amazing.
22: So punk rock. <laughs> so mm-hmm. good. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing I can think of right away is that she would ride her bike anywhere. It could be raining, it could be icy, whatever. And she'd always show up like it was just the nicest, sunniest, bestest ride ever. And then there's just the little things. Helping me move. Stuff like that, the things that you just kind of miss in a friend. It's a long list.
15: Hi, I'm Keegan Clore. We're in my backyard. Hannah lived with us for four or five months and so I spent a lot of time here working from home just beyond this little greenhouse there's a cottonwood tree that she planted so that feels really special but I think a lot about this swing where she would take meetings it's not maybe a specific memory but just thinking about a lot of times I'd be making breakfast or something and I'd poke my head out here and see her you know 6 a.m 7 a.m like on it doing news work doing news work (laughs) yeah doing news work Sometimes I'd come out and sit and maybe snuggle on the swing for a second or just, like, share a brief conversation or see what was going on with the day. I don't know. Special to have that time. I admire Hannah so much, and she inspires me so much. And, like, I I felt really lucky and honored to be around that. I feel like Hannah was so open to meeting people exactly where they wanted to be met. And feels like somehow is maybe, but definitely was a very gifted and also practiced listener. Being very, very present with whomever she was speaking to. The level of trust that people were then able to have because they felt like seen and witnessed like very authentically. She would talk about people that she had interviewed years and years ago and remember all the details and wonder how they were. Think about, oh, I need to reach out to them. That level of care is really special and also really hard to hold. I guess that's one thing is to try and be able to offer whatever my version of that is in our community as a way of holding and remembering and honoring her. It's hard for me not to keep using the word radiant. Her smile and like her sparkling eyes. There was something about being in her presence that was just magical that she was offering as a gift to other people and whether she maybe knew that or not, she absolutely was.
17: I'm Austin Fisher.
15: Something I will miss about
17: Hannah and a story that's come up in my head over and over has been her ability to make me laugh. When I first met her, I remember complaining about my car breaking down, and because we were two journalists who would talk shop all the time, we got onto the subject of like writing about public transit, writing about equity in public services, and we would commiserate over how private transportation is so costly and the very first thing she ever invited me to was her show at the launch pad. I think it was the second time she had ever played under the name Spliceling. She was about to start her set and she said to the crowd, I dedicate this song to public transportation. She would just pick out those little things and she would remember those little things and like turn it into something that was really beautiful. She was an incredibly observant person and uh, the things that she would see in uh, in myself and in people around her was incredible. She knew exactly how to make me laugh and make me feel better in a lot of circumstances and she was just able to take another look at Something you might be sharing with her and uh, help you reframe it.
23: I'm Audrey De La Cruz. The first time I met Hannah, my first impression of her was just, like, the sweetest person. Before we were hanging out often, I would just run into her at some sort of dance party and be like, Oh, there's Hannah! And it was just so wonderful to see her face and dance with her. But yeah, she was a big dancer, like you know take up space dancing you know some people just dance loudly i guess yeah she always looked really happy when she was dancing she was a very thoughtful person she always had time for you you know other than dancing we just would sit together and talk for hours go to the bosque or like sit on the porch and just talk and talk and talk and talk talk about everything I always felt really good afterward, and I don't think a lot of people are capable of going there and being that open with another human, but I really wouldn't doubt if everyone felt that way about Hannah. It's hard to actually use words to sum up the depths of a person, because there's just not enough words. If you were lucky enough to know Hannah, then you just know.
24: My name is Aaron Bumgarner. Long-time friend,
4: close, close friend of Hannah's.
24: Yes. It's just still so intense and raw. It's like, where my brain's at right now is, like, kind of broad things. And, like, I'm sure there's a hundred stories, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I, like, have those right now. One that came to mind was we had met, and then we were dating. And I was in Indiana, and she had moved to Seattle And basically, I was like, I just want to come be with you. She was living in, like, some tiny little apartment in Seattle. And I was like, I'll, like, try to find somewhere to live or somewhere to crash. It's, like, a really good time where we got to do, like, a ton of exploring together. Neither of us were, like, the busiest all the time at that point. There was time to, like, go on drives and just, like, wander around the city. But we had gone up... I believe we were visiting family and, like, we stopped in this little town called Conway. And there was this, like, really funky house with just, like, all kinds of things made with, like, a thousand nails hammered into a log. Big poles and had, like, things stretching and, like, different kinds of, like, little sculpture people. We just had so much fun. We were like, wow, we just found this, like, total gym and this, like, place where you wouldn't really stop. So this guy came out, his name was Tony, and I just started talking to him. And he's like, come inside, check it out. And then he, like, showed me his whole house. I was like, hey, what if I live in your attic and then help you with art? He was like, yeah, that might work. And I think at first she was like, what? And I was like, just trust me. And, like, she, like, really just kind of rolled with it. And it was great because I could go to Seattle and we could go, like, to the climbing gym or go explore or go to a show I could crash there, and then a couple days later, she might come up and we'd check out what the art we'd been working on or just, like, hang out. It was just, like, really exciting. Lots of, like, getting to know each other. Lots of things we didn't know yet, so we were, like, just getting to, like, learn all that and figure all that out. And just, like, getting to know Tony. He, like, absolutely loved Hannah And was like really excited when she came to visit and we would talk to him. And it was just like this funny, like I never would have ended up there like if I hadn't met Hannah that summer. And we were just kind of like figuring out how to be close to each other. That stands out as like a really special time.
25: I'm Mara Woody. I just started seeing her at shows. And just what a delightful, wonderful person she was. And we quickly became friends. It was just kind of easy to be her friend. I remember our band, Chichada were the characters from Labyrinth, and we played the whole music score of the movie. And we invited our friends to be goblins. And Hannah totally rose to the occasion and not only dressed up, but she didn't dress like a goblin, she dressed like Hoggle.
4: Hoggle, yeah. Yeah. Which I remember her saying, so she had not seen Labyrinth, which which I was totally surprised by, but... um. I remember her saying at rehearsal that she did not understand Hoggle. Like, she was like, I don't. What is his problem?
25: <laughs> really? I and love the, that. Yeah. And that then sounds she like came her. as Hoggle
4: because I think she was working on it,
25: you know? Which totally sounds like her to problem solve something like that. So we were on stage and it was close to like Halloween time, right? It was the Halloween show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was such a fun night, and it was so amazing and I just was so delighted that my friends were all playing together and Then Hannah just winked at me, <laughs> totally goofy, the smiling at me, and it just made me feel like this is like the greatest job in the whole world to just be hanging with my friends, so that's one of my memories of her. You know, just asking her to do something to be a part of our chorus and just her saying, yeah, I'm in and I, I'm going to dress up and I'm going to go above and beyond. So that was just the kind of person that she was.
4: Yeah. And she'd wink at you while she was sharing stage with you. Yeah, <laughs> it was good. So you've written a song for Hannah.
25: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's it called? It's called Palindrome because her name's a palindrome. Hmm. What prompted you to write the song? Well, I, like everyone, was totally saddened by hearing about Hannah. And I remember sitting down at different places around my, I have a musical room in my house and just kind of sitting like Goldilocks, like nothing seemed right, like just sitting down and getting up. I heard a voice in the back of my head that said, play some music. And it wasn't my voice. It was somebody else was her voice it was hannah and hannah was like play some music and get it out and it just came out of me and i just really i felt compelled to listen to it because that's i think when you can create the most is when you're raw and pure and full of emotion and so i thank my friend for that gift she gave me a song
26: My name is Monica DeMarco. Whenever Hannah popped up in a situation, she was like a real bright spot. One of the coolest memories I have is I went to Zine Fest and she had this really cool zine she had made to help people with voting. It was so nice to bump into her and then see this thoughtful thing that she had made. It was like even illustrated. It was beautiful. Like had all this great information like a journalist would give you, but then also being really creative in a cool way, too. I carried it around with me like well after the election was over. It's not something I could throw away. Hannah was really involved in the community and cared about people and wasn't just somebody who cared and didn't do anything. She's a person who cares and tries to do something with it in a positive way. I think a lot of times you fall into a trap maybe where you care a lot and that manifests itself as maybe being negative about things that are hard. For Hannah, it would be more like you love something, so you try to encourage good things to happen.
27: By Marina Daldallian. I have been collecting all of my memories, and the one that I really wanted to share was we went to Hyder Park. We, like, brought our own breakfast burritos, and there was a ton of hummingbirds just everywhere. Hannah was having an incredibly hard day. She had just made this decision to move into an apartment and live on her own and she was really racked with guilt about the fact that she decided to like take a space that someone else could have lived in and was really cognizant of all this privilege that she had. There was all these intersectional layers, thinking about economic resources and do I really need my own apartment and what does that mean if I'm taking up that space? You know, questions that I think a lot of people don't ask. I just remember having this conversation with her and just saying like you know how would you talk to a friend about this like would you talk to a friend the way you're talking to yourself and she said no of course right she was the kindest friend and that same day I saw my ex for the very first time in like over a year and I was just like stunned and she just went into empathy and holding space mode and was really attuned asking me great questions about how I was feeling just really letting me share about all the feelings it was bringing up for me this memory to me is just so much of the complexity that was Hannah Some of my favorite memories are of that bright, supportive, empathetic Hannah. I just also like never want to lose sight of the fact that she was also somebody who just felt really deeply and carried a lot of really hard things with her. Hannah and I actually met through a writing collective called Cushy. That's how we initially met. And one day our friend Danny posted about this morning practice. And so a smaller group of us got on WhatsApp and we would send morning memos. The first part is to start with gratitude. And then the next part is to say like your desires for the day and then your desires for the future. It was this really great way of just sharing things that we wanted to happen in our lives and <laughs> the things that we are grateful for. And so you have some of that audio, right? Yeah, I do. So Anna had gone to a wedding and heard a blessing at that wedding that she really loved and brought it back to us. We do have a recording of her actually saying that blessing. ¶¶
0: last words we're going to leave you with this hour is Hannah's blessing. But before we do that, we want to thank you for spending time with us today as we honor Hannah Colton, our radiant and kind friend, our inspiring and brave colleague, our beloved family member. Also, a reminder to our local listeners that tonight at 7pm we invite you to join us at Teagueway Park in Albuquerque for a public memorial to process our loss together and to sing in Hannah's honor. All are invited this episode was produced by Nash Jones and Marisa DeMarco you can find it online at KUNM.org or anywhere you look for podcasts one last time this is no more normal I'm Khalil A. Colonna thanks for listening
3: Friends, in body, mind, and spirit, may you be well this day and may you be strong to do the work of healing in the world.